Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Announcement time. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with chess queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess, and I'm really proud of it. It's out in Europe in ebook in March 2022 and a couple months later stateside. Right now, pre-orders are my love language. And I'd really appreciate if you click on one of the links in the show notes to make sure you get the earliest copy of Chess Queens. You can also go to jennifershahadi.com slash books for those links. I really think poker players are going to enjoy this book as it captures the intensity of a high level of competition, the triumphs, devastating losses, and chronicles some of my earliest gaming days. The Grid is a free show, and by supporting my work, you help this entire operation going. And speaking of which, with a big deadline behind me, I'll be upping the grid frequency. With that in mind, let's get in to this episode's special guest. Today I have a very, very special guest. He goes by DGAF Poker. That's right, don't give a fuck poker. He's the host of the meticulously crafted Epic Sessions podcast, chronicling his own struggles and triumphs on the poker road. He's at over 750 episodes. He's also the owner of the poker apparel company, Poker Rags. DGIF is hot off a main event cash in the World Series of Poker. And I want to give him a special shout out for taking a little piece of that min cash and donating to an abortion fund of my choice, the Lilith Fund. And of course, the DGIF spirit is helpful when it comes to clicking off all the hands on the grid. And he assured me he could tackle any of the 169. But he did have one memory that stuck out. And so today, DGIF speaks about 9-7 offsuit and the hand that hooked him on the game almost two decades ago. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Jen. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. A long time coming for sure. And this hand that you are bringing to discuss today, 9-7 offsuit, was from almost 20 years ago. So tell me about that memory. Um, is, it, is it very vivid for you? It is very vivid. I have a photographic memory, and, and this one is extremely vivid. The beauty of it is that I didn't play the hand very well, but it was very important. It changed my life, and it was on the very first day of the boom at my local card room. The very first day of the boom in your local card room? What do you mean by that? So when Chris Moneymaker won the main event in 2003, it took a while for ESPN to put it out. And whenever that was done and he got the bracelet and all the cash, a week or two later, card room started spreading No Limit Hold'em. And I was already a casino rat. I started playing stud eight and I moved on to Limit Hold'em. And I played very, very tight. And I remember the, the floor man announcing we're gonna start a new game, $1, $2, No Limit Hold'em. And I didn't know how to play. And it was the very first game. And I took a seat. And what was your bankroll like at the time? So it was a one-two game and you had about $250 in front of you. How did that represent like life roll bankroll wise for you? So at this time, I wasn't a poker pro yet. I was playing about 20 hours a week. So it didn't really matter. Anything I could come up with, I would just take with me to the casino. And if I won, great. And if I didn't, no big deal, but I probably brought somewhere around $800 with me on this day. That was pretty normal for me. 
So you weren't a professional poker player at the time. For those of you who are not listening to DGAF Poker's podcast sessions, I should say that his full-time job is creating many episodes of the podcast. I said 750 in the intro. That's like four a week in addition to playing poker. But at this time, almost 20 years ago, of course, there were way fewer professional poker players. So what did you do for a full-time living? So I just had different jobs. Um, I worked for a restaurant delivery company. I kind of moved my way up in that. And after this hand, I started getting very serious about poker. I went from 20 hours a week to 30 hours a week. And a few years later, quit my job and became full-time pro for many, many years. So you quit your restaurant delivery job and just like the hours just kind of kept diverting to poker. So after this hand, it took about three years of me both working. I was a regional general manager, conveniently in Las Vegas and San Diego, where I travel back and forth now. It gave me time to play poker, but I also started winning too much that it didn't make sense for me to go to my other job. In this particular game, um, the first No Limit Hold'em game that you played in, what was the very first few hands like? Did you kind of like it right away? So I was a little apprehensive at first. I didn't really know the rules to No Limit Hold'em. And I didn't really have any feel for the game. So I just sat down and I played like I would play Limit Hold'em at the time, which is extremely tight. And in Limit Hold'em, you have to make the best hand at Showdown to win. And that's the case with many games. And I didn't know yet that No Limit Hold'em, the beauty of it is that you don't need to. And so for about 15 or 20 minutes, I just played tight. And then this hand, I did not play tight. And this hand literally changed my life. So 15 to 20 minutes you played tight. Wow. That's that's a really long time. <laughs> no, just That's kidding. a long time for me, Jen. <laughs> I'm like sitting there thinking like, wait, wait, do you mean 15 hours here? No, no okay. this was day one of the boom. So 15 minutes you're like, that's like, okay, so you folded like three times, which is unprecedented for you apparently. Yeah. Because <laughs> live poker hands take a long time. I'm sure they took even longer back then. Anyway, you found three or four hands that were terrible enough to fold, but then you got nine, seven offsuit. I did. And there's a little backstory to nine, seven. At the time, in some book I read way back in the day, they said you should play some hand like aces. You should play very tight and limit hold them and just play some hand like aces. Of course, they didn't say you should probably have an ace in your hand, which would have made a lot of sense. The hand that I would do that with was 9-7 in limit occasionally. And anyways, this hand, yes, yeah, something just kind of twinged in my head to uh, call, call someone's open. And it, and it wasn't a wide open at all. It was somebody under the gun, apparently, right? It was an older gentleman, under the gun one, wearing suspenders, just really not wide at all. And he opened to $10, which is 5X, but no one was thinking along those lines at the time. And 9-7 offsuits will fold, obviously, but something just twinged in my head to call. Because you had this 9-7 off, like, superstition from before. It, was it a book that you read that mentioned 9-7 specifically, or they said you should have a, a hand like 9-7 and you picked 9-7? Yeah, it was something ridiculous that you should just play one hand like aces. You should play very tight and limit hold and play one hand like aces just to have some balance, I guess. And... Obviously, it should have had an ace in it if you're going to do that. And it didn't matter. This was way back in the day. My hand was 9-7. I didn't always do it. But sometimes I would go for it with that hand. And anyways, I just flatted here against a really strong raise. UTG1, the guy's wearing suspenders. He's probably in his 60s. He's not messing around. How much did you know about position in those times? Because I know that, of course, it's a, a big part of your game today when you play, especially um, weak hands. but Back then, um, was it something you'd picked up quite extensively from the other poker formats you played as well, that this is an important thing to be in position? I already knew how important position was, even in Limit Hold'em. And I just kind of felt it out in that first 15, 20 minutes that it's really going to matter in this game. So you called with the 9-7 off and the cutoff, and um, the, I guess everybody else folded? Yeah, just heads up pot. Then uh, the flop came, and... Eight, six, deuce, rainbow. So when you say you have a photographic memory, like 
You can actually go back in time and like see that flop now. I can't see the flop, but I can see the the man in the suspenders. And I mean, I can't see the suits or anything, but I can see the man in the suspenders. I can I can see all the people around the table. The whole card room was watching this game because everyone was so excited by Chris Moneymaker's win. I can go back like that. I cannot see the actual suits on the cards. So it's more like the people in the scene, which seems kind of more important anyway, as like a storyteller and a writer. Yeah. Now, how different is the image today than it would be like 17 years ago, right thereafter? You obviously had like a lot more detail immediately thereafter, or is it kind of just like stored in the same place? It's memories do fade. And I think though, I was so excited, a little bit overwhelmed by playing this new game that I probably didn't have that detailed of a memory other than the stuff that was important to me. The, the, my opponent and just all the people around and the buzz in the room. I can just go back to that anytime in my mind. How long did it take you to realize that you had a photographic memory? Did you realize that like when you were a little kid? So I, I don't know. I don't think I did realize it as a little kid. I just, uh, maybe I was watching a show just a few years ago and they were, and someone was having flashbacks to things that had happened in his life and they kept saying oh you have a photographic memory and and I kind of just thought everyone had that and I've never had like a doctor tell me that but it just seems like I can go back and that's what I do in my podcast I go back to a session I just played a week ago or so and I can see everything and so I I assume that's a photographic memory. Oh that's great and what about for sound and and language do you also have like a what is it phonographic do you also have a phonographic memory that you can remember like the conversations and the things that were said at the table sometimes yeah sometimes i will remember just obscure stuff that clicks for me for some reason and sometimes i just for the life of me can't remember someone's names it it just varies i definitely don't have a photographic memory but i often feel that i remember conversations better than other people, which is also really useful for writing. A lot of people complain about about women having very strong phonographic memories. So back to the hand. Old Man and Suspenders opened to Under the Gun um, 10, and you call to the cutoff with 9-7 offsuit. The flop comes 8-6 deuce rainbow. And what happens then? He pots it. He bets 20 into about 20. I'm not sure what the rake was at the time, but the blinds folded. So 20 into about 20. And I called pretty quickly. Maybe at the time I already knew to disguise my draws. Um, So maybe I took a few seconds and then I called with the open ender and the over card that that probably did not matter. And then... The uh, the turn came a, a three, bringing uh, a full rainbow or a badugi, as you put it. Yes, just a, a brick on the turn, unless, of course, I had five, four. But uh, I don't think the, my opponent nor I were thinking about that. Yes. And so what happened next? So now he bet 30 into 40, and I called. I think he bet 30. Yeah, that's what it says. Yeah. And I called again. I'm open-ended, the board's not paired, and I'm ready to gamble, and I'm excited. And I uh, just did, probably did the same thing. Took a couple seconds and called. And then what happened on the river? The river was one of the worst cards to ever bluff on. It paired the six, the middle card on the flop, and the old man in the suspenders checked. And I kind of had an aneurysm. I was... Only for a split second bum that I had missed my draw. And then something made me just say those two words. Uh, For the first time in my life at a poker table, I just said, all in. You said all in. And you had more than pot, right? You had... It was effective 180 or so into about 120. So 1.5x pot. And you said those words all in. And you just, they, they instantly just felt so right. It was impulsive. It, I don't rep anything, as you could probably, you know, figure out, but it just seemed like the thing to do, and it did feel good, and then I was instantly nervous. But it didn't take too long before he did the classic look at his cards and, and muck face up, and he had uh, pocket jacks. 
And did you show him what you had? No, no. I was nervous. This was my very first game of No Limit Hold'em. So I just folded and took the pot and just kind of got this this warm feeling inside. And, and obviously, I didn't know at the time, but this would really change my life. It would shape uh, my future, this, this one hand, because now I always loved poker and I played for a long time and, and I won, but I didn't win that much. Because I always played games that depended on on winning at showdown. You have to make the best hand to win in limit hold'em, stud eight. And those were the two games that I played. And now that this new game, I could win without making the best hand. I could miss my draw and still win the pot. And that was it for me. I never seriously played any other game uh, than no limit hold'em for and it's been about 20 years. And it's something really clicked at that point. How many years had you been playing those other formats, Limit Hold'em, Stud, et cetera, before this hand took place? I had played many different forms of poker, but I think it was 1998 or 1999 when I started playing casino poker. And I started just one night at Binion's in Las Vegas. And again, I sat down in a game I didn't know how to play. It was Stud, and it was Stud High. So... I played pretty regularly after that. So this was three or four years of playing stud eight or better for a while and then getting into limit hold'em. And the biggest game going in the room, if it got going, was 8-16 limit hold'em, which is just really small by today's standards. But that's, that's what I played, and I was kind of a hot shot in these really ridiculously small games. Interesting. The reason I, I, I ask is because, you know, I think it's quite interesting about bluffing that like that was the thing that like hooked you on to poker, because I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. We teach people bluffing like very, very early on. Right. It's kind of like almost synonymous with poker to a lot of people. For me, the thing was I now knew I could make real money because I didn't depend on variance entirely anymore. And as a live player, I could actually get a decent sample of hands where I'm in there because I don't have to play as tight anymore when I'm in position. And it wasn't right away. It was, uh, it was probably three years. I started studying everything that was out there at the time, lurking two plus two poker forums. And I actually ran really terrible at the beginning of the boom with the one person in the casino who had actually played No Limit from somewhere in the past, uh, this older guy who was a character. He, he said that he'd never seen anyone run as bad as I did. And then three years later, things changed. And I actually heard the opposite, that they'd never seen anyone run so good. And by that time, I put all the work in. I was your classic new pro, uh, just laser focused on every hand, going in every day after working out and working on my game. So that's why that hand, when you asked me what hand, I, th- I thought of that one. Because not only did you realize intellectually that you could win now by bluffing, but it sounds like you also got a lot of joy from it and uh, and just it, just the, the great feeling, even without having to show your opponent. Poker being so much work, you do need those moments to survive, don't you? You definitely do. I'm much more grizzled now. And those moments are more important now where you just really own someone in a hand. And that's not even what happened here. I didn't play this hand very well. Preflop is a fold. The flop is a call. The, the, the turn is, is debatable. And the river is a check back because I'm just not r- repping anything. But it didn't matter. The sheer aggression worked. And that's, that's the light bulb that, that kind of went on for me at that point is that you go from a game where you can't win unless you make the best hand to a game where you can always win unless your opponent makes a very strong hand, which is really hard to do. And I'm taking it that you also went through some periods of over bluffing because you uh, loved that concept so much. Yeah, I, uh, I, pr- I probably or almost certainly still over bluff. And people will say, well, you're a lag. And I don't even know if that's true. I just kind of I was a, a, a tag when I was playing limit because that's what made sense. And then once I saw that people didn't want to go all in, didn't want to call an all in with an over pair it just kind of shaped the way I play poker is I don't think you're going to put all your, your chips in unless you have a monster. And on this run out, you can't have a monster based on preflop and I'm just going to put it in and, and you're going to say, well, this guy could have a six in this case and fold. And so that was, that was the uh, big moment for me. 
And then in terms of content creation, um, playing more aggressively and bluffing when perhaps it's close to bluffing versus giving up, certainly it's always a more interesting story to bluff, right? So how does that factor into your decision or do you try really hard to kind of keep that away from the in-game decision-making? Yeah, I don't think knowing that I'm going to be reliving my hand histories shapes the way I play. The one thing it does for me is when things go very poorly for me, I think, well, this will make a good story at least. It makes me feel a little bit better at the table. Yeah, the the overbluffing almost cannot overbluff because even if it's bad in that hand, later on, you will get the dividends for it. You will have something that you'll be up against someone who has a lot of chips and they will have seen that hand or heard about it and they're not going to be able to fold. And you just get it, the money back. Even if you play, you know, play one hand poorly, you bluff in a spot you probably shouldn't have. You just get that money back later on if you can make a hand. For people who don't play poker, um, how would you best describe like a feeling that's similar to successfully bluffing in a big pot and in life? That's interesting. I'm trying to think if it's like telling a lie. It kind of is, but it's kind of like a friendly lie. Or a trick you're going to play on your friend. You know, maybe you're setting up a surprise birthday party or something and you kind of have to orchestrate it and tell them some white lies. Like, no, we're just going to do this. We can't go out tonight because of this, but, but it'll be fun. We'll just, you know, watch a movie. And if it's successful, you feel really good about that when, you, when your friend's surprised. So I think that's the best way I could describe it. Like an innocent lie. I love that. I love that for people who ha- find it difficult to bluff against their friends. Just think of it that you're throwing them a surprise party. <laughs> I mean, you are. Surprise, I didn't have anything. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Yes. Chocolate cake and balloons. Here you go. I'll take the money. That's a great one. I love that. I think that image is going to pop in my head when I'm bluffing against my friend next time. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to not feel bad about it when it's someone close to you, but Poker is a game where you try and win the chips. And in most cases, you should play hard. I struggle sometimes to make the best plays in poker, but I've never struggled with playing hard against friends personally. I don't know. For me, it's actually like the opposite that you would sometimes anticipate. I think that if you're playing a friend, you know, you don't want them to think that you're like bad at poker. So I'll probably play better. Well, you come from a very competitive background. I do as well, but you come from a competitive gaming background. So you can play, and, and chess sounds very civilized, where you will play your hearts against someone and then you will shake hands and talk about it later. Poker is that way for the most part, especially in tournaments it is. But when you live the traveling poker player life, you just, it gets lonely and then you find a few people that really make your life better. You know the backstory, you know they're not doing well and then it's just, sometimes you're like, okay, I'm not going to bluff this person. and, and I'm not saying that's right, but I'm just saying that's a trap I've fallen into a bunch. I think the one legitimate trap that makes a lot of sense is that if you think that your friend knows your facial expressions or your potential tells better, you can psych yourself out of bluffing because you think they're more likely to pick up on it, especially if you like wait too long. But then on the other hand, on the next level, some people would tend to bluff their friends more because they wouldn't think that they'd be bluffing them. So I, I think it could go anyway. But yeah, for sure, the surprise party is a great idea to make, to make the whole process more fluid and positive. Love it. Yeah. You should feel good about it. So when did you realize that you had a voice for broadcasting? Because it is very iconic. Uh, That's a good question. So the more I got into poker, the more time I spent reading everything, and that included two plus two poker forums. And then I just got a screen name just I picked out of thin air. I never thought it would matter. And that was DGAF. And this was a long time ago. And it was just based on a text I received at the same time I was creating an account. And I never thought I would post. I just want an account to search better because someone will say, did you hear about this hand with this person or this person? And then I would try and search two plus two poker forums. It would make me read that blurry phrase. And that's why I had to get an account. And then I started posting. It just happened. It was a way to keep sharp as a poker pro to to just figure out the best line for any situation someone presented and 
also to present your own situations. And it, there was actually a really cool vibe to two plus two poker forms back in the day. The best players in the world would help anyone. Then they realized that wasn't that smart, but it was just a cool vibe. And I did that for many years. And I, I just started writing in addition to that. I, uh, I started a thread that I thought was a, a parting gift. I thought I was done posting on two plus two poker forums. And I just kind of told my, my poker story slash my life story. And this thread went on for seven years. It was called 2K Poker Story. Way too motherfucking long. Didn't read, obviously. And I didn't know I had a voice for, for podcasting. I just uh, one day decided to start a podcast. And it took a while to even know that people liked my voice. I was, someone was trolling me saying, you suck at poker. No one will ever support your content on Patreon, which has proved to be very incorrect. And I just was trolling. I said, well, do you at least like my voice? And they said, yes, it's very soothing. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. I was just trolling. And, and, but it turns out a lot of people do actually find it soothing. That's amazing. So you just started recording and your voice came out like that. Interestingly, I was very shy growing up and in any social situation, just just had social anxiety pretty much. And I just kind of learned to talk over the years. And then I started using that as a, a pro. I graduated from the new pro who just sits there and grinds to the one that makes the game incredible and big and doesn't play his A game, but his B game, but he's earning so much more playing his B game in this huge, fun, social game than he was in his playing his A game in this quiet, smaller game. So that's where I kind of just learned to, to entertain by talking. I had no idea that my voice was anything you know, people would like. That's quite remarkable. It sounds like something that you've crafted over the years, but it's also, you are such a popular podcaster and once somebody listened to it for a while, it's also like really hard to separate. You mentioned you have a very successful Patreon. And in fact, I am one of your patrons and you have so many, you have hundreds and you're pulling in um, a nice income from that content. And, you know, you obviously are putting a lot of work into it as well. Four episodes a week lots of writing and editing and production involved in all of that. This is something that is becoming increasingly popular for poker players to be both players and also content creators, particularly on Twitch, but also in podcasting or writing or YouTubing. What, what is the most underrated skill in content creation that people um, don't give enough attention to? So I think the most underrated skill, and I don't even know if it's a skill, is humility is not presenting anything other than what you are, who you are, what you're good at and what you're bad at, when you do something well, when you do something poorly. That's something I've done, I think, because I needed like the therapeutic value of it. And people, some people will judge it, of course, but many people will just appreciate the honesty. So humility, honesty, whatever you want to call it. But uh, that, that's what I do. I present exactly what I think, unabashed. And I, I tell the story, like in my most recent drop, the one that dropped today, I played horribly and I didn't sugarcoat it. I just, I, I said, there's reasons why I played horribly and it's okay, I won't always. And so some poker fans will say, well, why am I listening to this? And other people will say, it's pretty cool. This person who's been extremely successful just said he played horribly in a session. And and I like it. Next time I listen, he'll probably play better. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice, whether it's writing or, or YouTubing. I mean, but honestly, everything in the end of the day comes down to writing. I think that's something that people don't quite realize about podcasting, that usually the podcasts they like the most are the ones that are really well written and they're, that it's not by accident. Tell us a little bit about your process as a writer preparing for you know, all of these podcasts at, at such a high volume. So my podcast has changed a lot over the years. It started just as hand history review, and I just had some bullet points, and I would just read off of them. And then I started to write more, and the writing part is the most interesting part. I agree with you on that. It's the most draining for the content producer. It's, if, if you write for four hours, you're going to be exhausted at, compared to if you do any other kind of work for four hours, in my opinion. So I, I just have 
a mix. When it feels like I should write sentences, I do, even if it's going to take up my entire day. And when I feel like I should just have bullet points and kind of uh, spew off of them, I do that as well. And I'm actually much better at just looking at a bullet point and, and improvising, you know, going back to that moment in time and telling the story in whatever way I think makes sense. Then I am reading sentences, but sometimes I want to write sentences to tell something that happened. Some kind of combination. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, I do that a lot, too, with like speeches that I give in presentations. You know, just usually a few sentences for the beginning and the end and then bullet points for the rest of it. Who are some of your favorite writers, whether it's poker or outside poker? I don't really read. I liked a bunch of poets when I was in college. I like, you know, Charles Bukowski was probably my favorite poet, but I just haven't read that much. I, I don't know if I've always had some form of ADD or something where I'll find myself on the same page for too long thinking about other stuff. And I just... I don't read that much and I don't absorb that much content. I got into podcasts and I don't think podcasting, I don't think I'd ever even listened to a podcast yet. I just did it my own way. And people said, well, why are you sipping on a drink while you're recording? I said, I don't know, because I figure I'm going to talk for an hour and my, my throat probably needs it. So I don't really read hardly at all. So at least that brings on some authenticity, I hope, having anyone that I'm copying because I don't really absorb that much content written or otherwise. Because you are so busy making your own, for sure. So busy. Yeah, probably work on all my projects combined 120 hours a week. Oh my gosh, 120 yeah. hours a week, because a big chunk of it goes to actually playing poker. And then like, so let me guess, is it like 50 hours playing poker and another 40 on the podcast? And then 30 on other promo? It's a lot more on the podcast than playing. I don't edit. So when I record... I hit record and then I go for about an hour, but there's so much work before that of going through your notes and editing them, reviewing them. And, and the more you do that, the better your, your podcast is going to come out. I'm sure you agree with that. I rarely have done monologue podcasts. I am inspired when I listen to one of yours. I'm like, oh gosh, I should try this one time. And, you know, I, I have done like a couple where I do like readings from books and then discuss them. But yeah, it is inspiring. And it certainly it takes a lot more work, I think, because you don't have the other person to interact with and to bounce back and forth from. One of the themes in your pod and in your apparel and your brand is don't be a nit. Can you expand on that? What does it mean to be a nit in poker and in life? And what's your 12 step plan? So the word nit became popular when Antonio Esfandiari played on high stakes poker way back in the day. And he was talking about people that didn't give any action pre-flop. They only played the good hands, which used to print money and still in some games does print money to only play really good hands. And he said, well, you're being a nit. And people just thought that was a tight player. And it's really not. A nit is a, a parasite. It's someone who takes but doesn't give. So I, I tell people that you can play as tight as you want at the poker table, but if you're going to be taking money from the game, you got to be putting something back into the game. You need to smile. That, that's the first thing people could do. Not look intimidating. If you're a poker pro, a lot of poker pros like to look intimidating. To me, that's illogical. You want people comfortable. You want them to want to play all night. You want them to want to play bigger. So and it's just someone who takes more than they give. A parasite. And it's something I've dealt with a ton. After my initial phase as a poker pro of just being a really good player, I learned it was a better way to do it, just to make these games giant. And then I was doing all this work and I would have nits come in and just, and just take from the game and not do their part, which is just simple. It's just be friendly, don't seat change, don't do stuff that doesn't work if we all do it. And you have to straddle if everyone wants to straddle, even if when it's your straddle in that particular hand, I know it's not plus EV, but overall it is. So yeah, that, that's just something that I just kind of am obsessed with it, is communal behavior um, instead of everyone trying to get theirs. I think everyone trying to get theirs does not work as a system on, in any relationship or community or even in humanity. And I'm a pretty big idealist. I, I just don't, I'm not a fan of looking out for number one. Absolutely. And I love the way that you tie that in to content creation, because of course, there are some people who are 
very strapped and listen to um, podcasts and try to get all the free articles that they can get on the ghost sites and the gift articles. But there's also a lot of people who can't afford and are just not putting any money into what they actually consume and letting other people do that work. And I think you've done a really good job of expressing that. And that's probably why you have so many Patrons. Yeah, I so I used to just put everything out for free. And then just say, if you want to support this podcast, you can. And that was more successful than I thought it was going to be. But this year, I actually got a little bit strategic from a business sense where I started having content only for people who supported my, my podcast. And that, that's when I saw a lot of growth. I, I think it's fine to, to both have people who just want to do it because they feel like it's the right thing to do. They, they listen to this podcast every day. And they want to give back a few bucks a month. And also, you kind of got to nudge some people into that. And I started building a community for everyone who supports my, my podcast. And that's the one. There's only one rule. Don't be a nit. You cannot be about yourself. You can't think you're better or worse than anyone else. Your opinion, you, you know, state it, but then just let it be. No, no one has to agree with you. And you can't take more than, than you give. And it seems pretty basic to me. And I'm kind of a... I'm a raging idealist on this one thing in life. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I like your distinction there that a knit is more like a parasite than a tight player. I think that's really well put um, just because, you know, we need more words for things and there's, we already have tight to describe exactly what it means when you play a narrow range of hands. Nowadays, are there any hands that you're superstitious about? So you used to have this like nine, seven offsuit that you went bananas with and it's good that you went bananas with it, I, I suppose, because it hooked you to poker and here you are today. But do you still have any superstitions or just, you know, fun hands that you like to play? I don't have any superstitions about hands, but I will just do really dumb stuff at the table, partly to entertain myself, partly to entertain the table. For instance, the other night, I folded Jack Nine offsuit to a raise and it came nine high. And I was just kind of joking with the guy who won. And you know how people always tell the guy who won, oh, I would have flopped top pair. And I was doing that kind of as a joke. And I said, would I have won? And he said, yes. And I think he was probably lying. And I, and I didn't care. And I said, okay, I'm never folding again. <laughs> the next hand, I had 7-3 offsuit. And I said, I better be a man of my word. And I limped in there with 7-3 offsuit. And it went back to the guy I was just talking to. And he raised. And I picked up something on his raise that was either ace-king or ace-queen. And somebody called. And then I did the old limp re-raise with 7-3 offsuit. And knowing this guy has ace-king or ace-queen. And, and so many times I'm going to win even when I don't make the best hand. And that's what happened. And uh, yeah, that, that hand went to showdown. And, and I, I did. I made a 7 and he had ace-king. And uh, it was a nice big pot. So I will do stupid stuff like that. Obviously, I don't play 7-3 offsuit very often. But if I say something dumb like, okay, I'm never folding again. Well, at least for the next hand, I'm not folding no matter what. In these types of wild cash games where a lot of people get in there, are there any hands that you think are underrated that people fold that they really should not be folding? Let me think about that. So it really depends what kind of game you're in. If you're in a, a deeper game or a game where the stacks aren't that big compared to the blinds, certain hands will be overvalued. Suited connectors are overvalued a lot. And... Uh, in, in the more shallow games and little pocket pairs are undervalued. I see people folding little pocket pairs preflop a lot on stream and position. And that's not me. I'm not, I'm not doing that unless we're really shallow. I guess little pocket pairs seem like, like the, the one area where I see people overfolding preflop. Right, because you do some commentary as well. And you're like able to see all the whole cards and just kind of like assess what people are doing more but based on that. Yeah. And yeah, I started I started working for Hustler Casino Live. They hired me even though I had no experience, which was pretty cool. Yet another thing I just, just started doing, not really knowing what I was doing, but I'm really enjoying it and starting to get a little bit better at it. But yeah, that was the coolest thing is starting to see like, what's trendy in the poker world these days at the different stakes. And then you, you look at it, you watch, and then you find your own exploits of, okay, well, people are doing this. When they raise with an ace and it comes ace high, they're checking back. And they just do that too much. And so when someone checks back, you should never think about bluffing. And when they bet, you should uh, think about floating a lot. So I, I do enjoy watching uh, what, people's whole cards. 
It's really fun. I've done a little bit of poker commentary in the past, and I can't imagine you wouldn't be good at it because you have the uh, the voice for it and the improv ability from doing all these podcasts on your own as well. So you mostly play cash games, but occasionally you get in there with a tournament. Like for instance, the WSOP, the World Series of Poker, you played in the main event and that was in the fall this year. And uh, this year you, you gave a few percent of your winnings away and you let me pick one of those percentage points, which I gave to an abortion fund. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that decision to give away a little bit of your, your winnings there. I pretty much only play the main event every year because it's just built for a cash pro. It just is. The, the, it's so grueling. Mm-hmm. And who better to play that than someone who's just used to sitting at the table for way too long day after day? And it's deep stacked, which is what cash is. So that's the tournament I play. And what made me want to give a few points, I gave... Uh, 3% away going in to, you know, 1% to three different charities. Well, first of all, I was inspired by you. You did that. You're rich in me doing it, but you played, you played an event for a cause. And I think it was more than 1% that you gave away. And I saw your tweet and maybe a light bulb went on at that point. I played in the women's world series of poker. So the ladies event um, and a couple other events, I didn't get to go out for a long time this year because I was finishing um, my book, Chess Queens, which you guys can pre-order, by the way. Uh, But uh, the the link will be in the show notes. But anyway, I found it very awkward that I was doing all this work to promote girls and women in chess and then also playing the World Series of Poker Ladies event and recently joining the advisory board of Poker Power, which is this amazing org to get more women in poker. And meanwhile, so all these organizations and work that I was doing was all about women and girls and gender minorities making better decisions, right? And you know, modeling it through a game. And then meanwhile, in Texas, like the most important decisions of people's lives, their rights are getting taken away. So to me, it really felt like, okay, I gotta, you know, make this connection. And um, I have a personal connection to the Women's Center in Philadelphia because I actually had a uh, termination for medical reasons. So um, I actually had to get an abortion there. I gave my 10% to them. But then, of course, there's so many places in need all over the country particularly in Texas. So that's the backstory of why I did it. Okay. So, so that's pretty cool. And I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, but I do scroll occasionally. And I saw that you had done that and it didn't click for me right away. And then maybe a couple weeks or maybe a month before the main event, I was feeling, I was running very poorly in cash and I was feeling sorry for myself. And I was you know, selling pieces at markup. And then I just kind of thought like how ridiculous this all is. Anyone who gets to play the main event is just so fortunate, so privileged. It's, it's nuts. And I decided I need to give away 3% to charity and it's going to do several things. It's going to, it's going to do some selfish stuff. It's going to make me feel better and it's going to make me play better there are moments in that main event where you just want to punt. You just get so frustrated. There's adversity, of course, in these long days. And I figured that would be the one thing that might hold me back from from getting too frustrated and I would feel good about it. And uh, it's just kind of a reality check of don't take yourself too seriously and and just remember how lucky you are. You're playing this. 3% of the buy-in is only 300 bucks. I bet $300 on a game all the time. It seems almost, it's, it's pretty trivial. And, but if I make a deep run, it could be something very significant. And I just took three people I really respected, you being one of them, and said, I don't know much about charities. And I just said, you each pick one and I'm in. Yeah, that's wonderful. So thank you for doing that and good job cashing. And you mentioned that actually there were moments where it did give you that extra motivation, which I think, Some people get when they have like a backer or they do a lot of swaps, even if they're exhausted and tired of playing, they're like, well, I do have other people who are counting on me. Yeah, that helps. I I always think of my kids, obviously, who, who I support and other people that, that want me to do well and I want to do well, but yet it was an extra level of protection against tilt in this very tilting tournament. A few times I thought, okay, like just 
play your best right now, even though everything's going poorly, you need to cash, right? Even, even though things are going so horribly leading up to the bubble, well, you need to cash. You're, you're not just playing for yourself. And I could not recommend it more. It's just a, and even after I busted, I felt better than I would have otherwise, because I just was able to do just a tiny bit of good and hopefully set an example for some other people to do a tiny bit of good. And, and I, I shouldn't even say set the example because I got it from you. Oh, thank you. It's so, so kind. And, you know, there are a lot of great poker players out there who are so charitable. I mean, like Dan Smith, Liv Bree, there's so many examples. I think that the randomness of poker, like kind of awakens people to the fact that like, who is lucky enough to play poker is also very random. There's a reason I think that um, poker players end up being very charitable. And I think that's one of them. Basically, that's what you were saying, too, especially in this crazy year or crazy two years now. Jeez. Yeah, and any time a poker player is feeling sorry for themselves, they've really just lost perspective of how good they have. If you're a professional poker player, you have it so good compared to the average person in the world. And if you're playing the main event, that's just so fortunate and, and privileged that maybe just giving a few pieces to uh, some charities will, I don't know, it'll just keep you level-headed. You say you're, you're very privileged, but I, I mean, working 120 hours a week, that is, that is tough. I mean, I guess you're doing what you love, but I imagine that you sometimes have to reckon with burnout. I do. And this year I've been pretty burnt out the last few months. I have overworked. I'm kind of, my story is kind of a comeback story. I made all the money in poker and lit it all on fire, not in poker. And then I had to make a comeback. I did it again and magically lit it on fire again. And then really started to be introspective and work on myself. I know everyone talks about working on themselves, but I just kind of went through my past and worked through some really tough stuff. And that's what I've done in my podcast. And I feel like it's uh, enabled me to be less self-destructive. And so... This, this hard work is, is a grind. It's a comeback story. And I, and I really feel like I've done four years of sessions, podcasts, and I, I feel like the, the stage has been set for next year where I will make my third rise and hopefully not light it on fire yet again. What is the ultimate goal? My ultimate goal is just to be financially secure so that I can lead a balanced life, which I don't do at all right now and spend more time with my kids. I spend a lot with them, but, but one of the things I really love is coaching and, and it's hard to coach on, on my crazy schedule. And I would like to do any excess. I would like to just do good stuff that will make me feel good and benefit others. I don't really have any wealth goals. That doesn't really mean anything to me. I've been around long enough and I've, and I've had all the money twice and it didn't make me happy as much as having connections and, and doing stuff for others, you know, also having some balance in life, maybe traveling, something like that. That makes sense. So basically work a little bit less and do similar things, but just have more flexibility and like security. Yeah, I have burnt myself out and I'm struggling to get through this year, but I'm, I'm almost done hitting all my deadlines. And next year I already have a, a better schedule. And I think uh, things start getting better for me next year. And either way, it's made for a really cool story, I think. I bet you could charge a lot for poker coaching. I bet you if you got that business going, you could make a really good hourly from that. Yeah, I, I come from the old school. Where we don't we don't talk a lot of strat like and at the table. I never do. And and I have with a few friends, but I could actually do it on a level of if you want to make money in poker, here are the soft skills that you need to have. And that's where that's where the actual money is. Poker pros don't make money by playing the best against other good players. They make money by playing in the best games and playing considerably better than their opponents. But you have to be in those games and, and not everyone gets invited to them. So you have to cultivate them. And yeah, I, I could probably do it on that level. Yeah, it just seems like you have a unique voice and you have so many people who listen to your podcast. You probably want your perspective. A lot of people want to approach poker as a sport and a tournament. It's okay. People buy in, they can't leave until they bust. In a cash game, they can leave whenever they want. If you play it like a sport, the game's going to die. It just does every single time you have a big game. And if 
the people there with their disposable income that have done very well in life, if they're not having fun and if they're feeling like prey, they leave. And that's what happens when it's a sport. So I always tell people that want to do that in my games where I want to, I want to give this person who has the disposable income, I want to give them some value for their money. I want to make it fun. I'm not going to be cutthroat with them. And I tell the people that know poker's a sport, I say, you guys go play chess because there is no variance in chess. Is that right, Jen? There's no, no variance? Very, very little. I could give you some like really rare exceptions, but yeah, like what color you get or if you're playing somebody who's like really off the rocker that day, but it, it's pretty minor. Yeah, the better player wins the large majority of the time. Yeah, so a lot of people love the, the strategy of poker and I get that. It's, it's pretty cool. But really, poker is a social game that you play for money. And if you really, really love the strategy and that's all you care about, I don't, and people say, I don't care about the money. I just, well, why wouldn't they play chess? Because maybe because they're not protected by variance. If they lose, it's because they're uh, not as good as their opponent. Maybe because the money and then also their people. Like, I mean, I think those would be the two reasons. As somebody who really, I probably, I, I would say that what I like the most about poker is like, the math and the strategy and like the psychological roadblocks to actually sometimes following what you know is the correct play. I find that really interesting. Like you just, you know, that you, it's like a mirror for your, your bad relationships with money and desire and fear. I think that poker brings that all to life because, you know, money operates most of our society. That's what I like about poker. It's funny, like for you, the fact that the entryway to becoming really passionate about poker is bluffing. Mm -hmm. That's not something I relate to. But I do think that it is true for so many poker players. Like that big moment is is the ability to bluff. Yeah, it's not just the excitement of bluffing like I did in the 9-7 offsuit hand we discussed. It's knowing that this is a game I can actually win real money in because I don't have to wait for the best hand. Right. And so it's just, uh, you can make a steady income if you can win anytime your opponent doesn't make a quote unquote stack off hand. And depending on who that is, uh, that can be really tough for them to do. That's true. So it's basically the strategy because bluffing is part of the strategy. It's not like the joy and the humiliation of bluffing someone, which does play into, everybody loves bluffing for a different reason. And I think that sometimes can play into some people, especially in the old days where people used to show their their bluffs even more often than they do today, right? Yeah. Sometimes you need to blow off some steam. You need to vet at the poker table. So you want to get a bluff through and show it. I still do that sometimes. Or if everything's going too well for someone, I like to do that, show them a bluff to kind of get them off their game a little bit. But yeah, we don't show as much as we used to at all. Then there's also that pleasure of having a secret that you know nobody knows but you. And of course, the people that you tell about it on your wonderful podcast sessions, which you guys should all go check out and sub to. You can also find DGAF on Twitter at DGAF Poker Player and his clothes at PokerRags.us. <laughs> it's just funny because I'm interviewing you and you're in a closet and I'm like, no, that you can find your clothes in the closet that I see you in right now. Oh, yeah. As well as on PokerRags. And uh, Sessions is on all the major podcast networks on Spotify and Apple. And yeah, it's been so wonderful to finally have you on the pod. Thank you so much. 9-7 Offsuit. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.